It's another episode of Movies You Should Love with Lauren and Scott. Welcome to the podcast. He's Lauren. And he's Scott. Let's get into it. We're on episode 11, in which we discuss number 90 on AFI's Top 100, uh, Swing Time. But before we get into that, we're going to discuss a few other things, uh, namely any movies we might have seen recently. Lauren, anything uh, good that uh, that's worth discussing? Yeah, I've seen uh, uh, several movies here recently. Um, probably most notably, um, I went and saw over um, some of the holidays here, uh, Sherlock Holmes' Game of Shadows in the theater. Um, it was really, really good. I... Uh, uh, I don't want to spoil anything or give any plot details away or anything because it's still pretty new and everything. But um, it has Professor Moriarty, which mm-hmm. is the best Sherlock Holmes villain of all time. Um, even going back to the original story, I mean, it's well, he, he's like he's the, the the main one. He's yeah. the recurring one. Yeah, no one else really reoccurs. Yeah, and I mean, he doesn't even really reoccur like back in the books, but. Uh, you know, he's kind of hinted at a couple of times. Then, you know, but he is kind of this criminal mastermind that kind of spawned this whole concept of supervillains and everything. He's he's kind of fantastic. Is, um, is Moriarty the first time we saw like in uh, like in literature like that a a mirror of our hero? Do you think, or do you know? I, you know, I don't specifically know. Um, like we we see, a, I see a lot of that. Like in comic books, you have like here's Spider Man and here's Venom, here's Captain America and here's. Captain Russia. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to say that he's like the first time we've ever seen a, a direct mirror of, of a hero, but I mean, at the same time, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes and, and Arthur Conan Doyle definitely created kind of a modern mindset of, of the way that you tell stories. And, and I mean, I think you can kind of blame almost every um, superhero or or anything in their kind of current form on Sherlock Holmes in a lot of ways. I think mm-hmm. I think he kind of set up the obviously, you know, there's other elements to them and stuff, but I mean I think he definitely set up the structure for how that works. I think works there's definitely today. a certain formula that was probably yeah. described to when you look at the hero sidekick villain. Yeah, exactly. Dynamic. Exactly. I think he definitely put it in place. And um and yeah. and that's kind of the way this movie goes. It's the way this this new Guy Ritchie franchise goes. Is it's you know it's definitely Sherlock Holmes as James Bond. You know, I mean, yeah. he's definitely not Sherlock Holmes as Arthur Conan Doyle wrote him. Right. But he's a lot of fun to watch. I mean, yeah. it, it, this movie could just as easily be you know James Bond in his new adventure. Right. Um, up against an amazing supervillain. Right. But that's not a bad thing, unless you are a literary purist. Other, than, <laughs> right. other than that, it's a really fantastic movie. It's way, way stronger than the first movie. The plotting is better. The, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, everything... Uh, I have a couple of nitpicks with it here and there, but overall... Are we? Can we? Can we discuss the one problem I sure. know we both had sure. with the movie? Because yes. I only really had one complaint, yeah, other I'm, than... Once you acknowledge it as Sherlock, the action movie, mm-hmm. um, the my only problem was like in the and it's in the, it's in the first ten minutes. This might seem like a spoiler, but a character dies, a fairly major character dies, um, and the way it's handled is very unemotional. Yeah. It's very it's very strange the way, it, and it's, I guess it comes down to the editing, possibly the way they shot it. It's just um, very nonchalant the way it happens. You're just kind of like, oh, well that just happened. Did that really happen? I don't 
I don't right. know. It's and that was something that like I know Marshall and I we went and saw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marshall, my brother, um, and through most of the movie, we kept expecting that character to return uh, because because of the way it was shot. It's like you don't see the body, mm-hmm. and we're, we've kind of been trained to if you don't see the body, not really dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the way the movie goes on and ends. It's pretty obvious that that really happened. That really happened. That character's dead. And it's it's unfortunate because I think it, it could have really set the movie off and made the stakes... Clearly what they were trying to do is make the stakes very emotional, very mm-hmm. personal for Sherlock. Yeah. Um, you know, reach him on this personal level while also um, examining this very big, the worldwide... Ramifications sure. of Moriarty's. Yeah, uh, again, using the intentions. James using the James Bond analogy, it would have been very similar to Vespa dying, not right. to not to ruin you know Casino Royale for everyone, but but very similar to that concept, um, yeah. and creating kind of this angst inside the character of James Bond that kind of explains his future behavior from there on right. out. Right, and, and I think that's what they were trying to do. In and if, I think if they'd given us just one more minute of film. It would have gotten there. Yeah, this will give us one like, an extra sequence after um, what happens happens and show just the awfulness of what ha- just happened and how that really does affect him. Yet, in a weird in a weird way, we're not really let in. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not really let into Sherlock's mindset or his real reaction. Um, other than a few little moments later on in the film, we see. Just these little nods to yeah, that means something to him. Mm-hmm. But we're not, we're kind of keeping an arm's distance, an arm's length distance from Sherlock, which yeah. to me was really my only complaint because I love the the finale takes place over a waterfall mm-hmm. in the same way that uh, Moriarty's first book appearance ends over mm-hmm. a waterfall. Yeah, and it's that it's, whole that whole climate, that whole finale was just really really great, really yeah, well done. It's and and uh, you know the the plotting of the movie kind of some of the World War 1 overtones that are mm-hmm. coming into it and stuff, some of the anarchist movement mm-hmm. and and uh, it's it's very fascinating. It felt really really relevant. I mean there's there's suicide bombings and all of that kind yeah. of stuff and it, and it felt really really relevant to today's society. It felt as, relevant and it also felt like this this very possible hidden moment in history because yeah. if you know the way world war one began it was through a bombing mm-hmm. and so when you know that and you see how moriarty is trying to begin a world war before world war one it's like he still succeeded maybe i don't know maybe he's t- a tied to that whole story that we mm-hmm. know from real life which i thought was really well done because um, i had a couple friends who uh they were a little put off by the the dark supernatural overtones of the first Sherlock movie. Mm -hmm. And they asked me afterwards, is is this movie the same? Is it going to be more, you know, pentagrams and, you know, weirdness? And no, not at all. (laughs) It's like completely different style. Yeah. I mean, not style, but yeah. Yeah. We're in a completely different realm of mystery and adventure and Mm -hmm. it's fantastic. Yeah. So definitely, definitely. uh, If you like the first one, I would say this one's better. If you didn't see the first one, this one's better. And, <laughs> and you know, the first one was good, but this one's better. And if you didn't like the first one, uh, for maybe all of its darkness or that kind of thing, definitely give this a shot. I think it's a significantly better movie yeah. all around. So, yeah. Um, let's see. What else have I seen? Um, my wife and I also went and saw New Year's Eve. In How the, was that? Yeah. You know... I went in with incredibly low expectations. Um, I'm just going to say that up front. It's, it's, you know, I don't have anything against kind of the romantic 
comedy genre. Mm-hmm. Um, but this kind of seems like an almost a subset of it now. It, it um, yeah, because right, this, this is the same guy who did Valentine's Day, and it right. looks like it looks like the same formula basically. Yeah, which is it's it's exactly the same different formula. stories, and and you can tell that he got this formula from Love Actually, and I love Love Actually. Yeah, it's a fantastic movie. Um, this is the logical conclusion of the thought of what began in love actually it is the exact same formula distilled down to um like this this team could make a this movie for every holiday now right that exists i mean we're going to see um you know flag day at some point or you know and it's and it's going to be entirely watchable because they have figured out how to tell like these 15 interweaving stories you know create these characters who are each crisscrossing each other um they're all moderately interesting some of them a little more interesting than others and um you know it's it's an entirely implausible movie um it's it's but at the same time it's entirely um harmless too for the most part you know it's just kind of that uh sweet sappy kind of thing right and uh, it, it, it was it was okay. Uh, I don't have anything bad to really say about it. I mean, you can if you start thinking about it, you can start poking holes in it all over the place, right? Um, but it's not really that sort of a movie, right? So it's you know it, if you go in watching it with someone you love, or you know it's going to be kind of a sweet, warm, fuzzy, and you're going to be you know pretty happy at the end. Yeah, so. Yeah, it's it's it, it does exactly what it sets out to do, mm-hmm. and really nothing more. And uh, and that's okay, I think, in this particular case. Okay. So yeah, um, then let's see. Uh, I've seen a couple of other. I, I went back to uh, some classic British films from the fifties and sixties, mm-hmm. um, uh, mainly because my Netflix queue was getting a little low, and they <laughs> seemed. <laughs> They seem pretty interesting. It turns out I've seen a lot of movies on Netflix. Um, but uh, so uh, I went back and saw The School for Scoundrels, which I had never seen, and then another movie called Make Mine Mink, which I had seen ages ago, like maybe when I was 10 or 11 or something like that. I haven't seen uh, this School for Scoundrels. This is this was remade with uh, Billy Bob Thornton and Tom Heater. Possibly. Is this the same? School for Scoundrels? Honestly, I'm not sure if it's the, the same or not. Okay. Because um, I never actually saw... Me neither, and I yeah. saw it on your list. I was a little surprised, because it's like, it just does not interest me. No, no, but this is this is the 1950s uh, version of this movie. Um, it has uh, Alistair Sims in it, who who most people have known. He played Ebenezer Scrooge in, mm-hmm. in A Christmas Carol at one point, and a lot of people have seen that. It's got Terry Thomas, who was a huge, huge character actor... Um, British actor. Uh, he, he did voices in several Disney cartoons, and that's probably where most Americans would know him from. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's basically um, this really 1950s kind of thing where there's this business executive guy who is kind of a loser. Everybody walks over him, and, and he doesn't really have... But he's, he's a nice guy, but he doesn't really have any um, ability to do anything. So he ends up going to this school where they teach him basically how to uh 
be a man's man and uh you know to to get the women and to right. to uh it's it's all about one upsmanship is kind of what they talk about everything's you're trying to one up the next person always trying to be above them basically and so he goes and learns all of this stuff and kind of goes back and there's this girl and he this kind of other british cad sort of guy who he plays tennis with kind of for her and it, it, you know it's kind of that silly upper middle class british humor from the 1950s and uh, it, it's enjoyable and at the end he, he kind of learns his lesson and like he he keeps the good things from the things he learned at the school while at the same time leaving behind some of the stuff that also turned him into and you're kind of like now you're just annoying he kind of walks away from some of that kind of so you know it 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 works and it's it's entertaining it's not a great movie or anything but it was a, a certainly an entertaining sort of thing if your netflix queue is empty mm-hmm. um you know worth a worth a look i guess mm-hmm. um make mine mink um is also kind of out of that same genre kind of that upper upper middle class british humor from the 50s um there's this group of people who kind of all live together in a flat um, that is owned by this dame um, who works with charities. And she's gone uh, broke, basically. And um, through the course of of a few different things, they realize that they could make a lot of money um, stealing fur coats fencing them and then giving all of that money to charity so it's almost kind of a robin hood sort of movie Mm -hmm. but they are completely inept at doing it except that they always succeed (laughs) so okay so there's this really eccentric group of characters who go out and keep doing these these various heists of Mm -hmm. fur coats is basically what happens and then they they sell them and give the money to charity and it's uh, you know, it's it's definitely kind of that situational comedy kind of things. There's yeah. some slapstick to it. There's some, you know, some one-liners and uh, yeah, it's it's funny. It's probably funnier than School for Scoundrels is, and I would say it's a better movie. So if you're going okay. to pick one of these two, this one's the one to go with. And uh, cool, you know, a couple of a couple of semi-classic films you may never have heard of, but <laughs> but there you go. Cool. And while you were watching those movies um, over the holidays, I uh, uh, I went and saw uh, Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol. Uh, it was a movie I had wanted to see, um, largely because I am a Mission Impossible fan. I've enjoyed all of the movies in various degrees. Um, I know it's easy to pick on John Woo's Mission Impossible too, but as I as I look back to when I was, I don't remember how old I was when it came out. I really I remember really being excited about it and really liking it when it first came out. It has not aged well, even still. <laughs> but that being said, uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol um, is a lot of fun. It's uh, it has the same it has a very similar feel to uh, Mission Impossible Three, which was directed by J.J. Abrams. Um, this is directed by Brad Bird, um, who you know directed The Iron Giant and The Incredibles and Ratatouille. Ratatouille. Yeah. Um, and this guy knows how to tell a story. He's a very visual person, and he puts together some very impressive. Um, visual uh sequences some very very cool stunts to take place in this film as they do in all the mission impossible movies so there's certain things you you've come to expect um between you know people falling off very tall buildings or people uh diving down tunnels or um they do some fun things like uh 
like the, the old Mission Impossible movies or the, the previous ones, they've always had masks where mm-hmm. you know people were like, it wasn't the guy you thought he was. And in this movie, they they don't use they only use the masks once, and it's the villain who uses it, and not the heroes. And the heroes have the masks, um, but they never get them to work. Like they have this machine that makes masks, and it always breaks or fails. And so they, they kind of go out of their way to kind of even strip some of the technology away from the heroes, mm-hmm. while still emphasizing. Um, the team aspect. Ethan Hunt is not James Bond. Um, he is who he is because of his team. Um, there is one sequence that does have a very fancy piece of technology, which I won't spoil because it's a wonderful sequence, which is a little sci-fi fanciful, but um, it's a lot of fun. And what I really appreciate about this movie more uh, than almost anything else is the fact that this movie um, legitimizes the the continuity of the previous three films. You kind of believe that after this movie, you kind of believe that Ethan Hunt has been the same character in all four of these movies. Now he has experienced all these things, you know, they embrace, you know, some of the, the big wild stunts of mission Impossible two while rooting it in the reality of mission Impossible three while, you know, kind of touching back to the first Mission Impossible movie. And so you kind of go, maybe all those movies really could have happened, even though Mission Impossible 2 was kind of silly and John Wooey um, maybe it did really happen because there's this continuity that's going through that you don't see like in a James Bond franchise or in some of the other movies. This is the same character and he's experienced the same things. The wife isn't written out of the story. She's very talked about through the whole movie and it's it's cool, and I really, I really enjoyed it. I especially enjoyed it because we got to see it in IMAX, which is something I don't ever do. Um, but we were in a city where they were showing the Batman prologue, and so I was like, we have to see this in IMAX so I can see the Batman prologue, <laughs> which was, an, I'm not going to say anything about the first eight minutes of ba- uh, The Dark Knight Rises, but they do a stunt in the first eight minutes that I have never seen in cinema. There's a sequence I've just never seen. I'm not going to spoil because you need to see it in the theater and be aghast like I was because they do something that's both horrifying and amazing and just like, I've never seen anybody do that. How does Christopher Nolan keep doing this to me? <laughs> but Two thumbs up on a uh, ghost protocol. Um, yeah, I d- it's definitely on my list of stuff that I want to yeah, see. A lot of, a I, lot of, it's a lot of fun, and you can definitely tell that at the end of this movie, they are kind of um, keeping the door open to continue this franchise without Tom Cruise. Like this might be Tom Cruise's last, and Jeremy Renner might take over the franchise. You can see how they're kind of there's this very specific sequence at the scene at the end where it feels like a passing of the torch. But it doesn't have to be. Tom Cruise could still be in these movies, but maybe he will take a more uh, behind-the-scenes role as a character or as a or as a producer of the film. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but um, they leave that open. And they definitely, they definitely. There's one character specifically that they really say he could be the new leader. So it's it's it ends kind of like uh, the last Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> better because it, it, better. <laughs> well, that wouldn't be too hard. Yeah, no, it, it's not. It's not so obvious as the hat rolling and it hits. You know, it's like it's nothing that obvious. And like, no, no, not your turn yet. Um, but you kind of go. I see what they're doing there. This could be the. This could be the last Mission Impossible movie, or this could be the start of a new. A new franchise. franchise. A new non-Ethan Hunt franchise. That being said, Tom Cruise is amazing in this movie. Like, the things that he does, and knowing going into it that he does all his own stunts in this movie um, is shocking. 
Um, okay, then I saw Warhorse after that. Um, Spielberg's uh, one of Spielberg's two movies that are in theaters right now. Um, if you don't get to see it in theaters, I think that's okay. Um, but I would I would highly highly recommend this to anybody. This has a very old movie feel to it. It's a very classic movie. Like this, like if you had said, "Oh, I saw Warhorse," and it has you know uh, Catherine Hepburn in it, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, oh, okay, because it feels like that kind of a movie um, in the best way possible. Um, for those of you who like, I went into it knowing nothing about this movie. All I knew about it was Spielberg directed it, John Williams did the score, and that it was based on a play. Um, there is a, and it was based on the play was based on a book, and the book is basically about um, this particular horse that's born. It starts with the birth of a horse in England, and then you basically get to follow the horse through World War One, um, which I know it kind of sounds a little silly. Um, but the horse doesn't talk. It's not like a weird, silly kind of a movie. The movie's really about all the people around the horse, and the horse is just this connecting element through all of these little stories. It's almost like four or five short films pieced together with this horse kind of meandering through it. And some of the stories are just... It's one... <laughs> I tweeted recently, if you're following me on Twitter, you, you saw me recently tweet that I have entered a new stage of my life where I cry in movies. I am not one of these... I've, I, I love movies, but they've never really affected me in that emotional direction. In this movie, there's a sequence involving some British soldiers that I got choked up in, and I don't completely understand why, um, other than it's just a spectacular short story. Um, and there's two, char- two actors in this, that everybody needs to everybody needs to recognize and start following um, Benedict Cumberbatch and Tom Hiddleston. Um, when I say follow, I mean just go find out what other things they're in because they are fantastic. Watch them; they are going to be huge. Benedict Cumberbatch, which is maybe the best real name that sounds like a fictitious name ever. <laughs> <That's> so- <laughs> he sounds like a Dickensian character. He's like exactly. Oliver Twist and Benedict Cumberbatch were they were born and yes. yeah yeah. Mm. Um, but he is currently playing Sherlock on the ongoing BBC uh, series, which, Sherlock. Which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, but just yes. in general, fantastic. Yes. And he is, and he plays Sherlock Holmes in that. And that's where I first saw him. And I didn't know he was in War Horse. Now all of a sudden he showed up, I go, oh, Sherlock's in this. And he is great. And Tom Hiddleston is also in that same story with him. And he, uh, he plays a British soldier who um, buys the horse from the boy uh, at the beginning of the movie. Um, and Tom Hiddleston, you might know if you saw the movie Thor, he played Loki in that. And he's been in a couple other movies. I believe he was in Midnight in Paris recently as well. I haven't seen that yet. But he is spectacular in this movie where he plays this British soldier who's very proper and very... Um, he is a soldier through and through, but yet he, he doesn't... Uh, you know That doesn't get in the way of him developing this really grounded character that is also very easily easy to love and easy to relate to um the way he treats the boy and the horse at the beginning of the film is just wonderful and you just you like him instantly and those are two people who i think are going to have very great careers um they may they may they both have the potential to be like the next uh gary oldman and um liam neeson i mean they are british actors that are just phenomenal to watch um Warhorse, highly, highly recommend it. It's wonderful. It's Spielberg really doing his best work, I think, in a while. Um, John Williams does the score for it, and it's John Williams being John Williams. It's great. 
Uh, sorry, last movie I was going to touch on before we get into swing time is The Adventures of Tintin, which is a movie that I think should be doing better than it is. Yeah, uh, just to jump in, I mean, uh, this movie hasn't done as well in America as it has done worldwide, which is a little understandable. Tintin yes. is is like the comic book in, in Europe, basically. Yeah. I mean, this is like... Uh, you know what Spider-Man is to North America. Tintin has been since like what the the fifties yeah. <laughs> to Europe, basically. Yeah. And um, weirdly enough, I, like I'm really excited about this movie. I haven't seen it yet, so mm-hmm. Scott's going to talk about it. But Tintin was actually one of the few comics I actually read as a kid um, because our local library had like this giant omnibus of them, and I would sit and just pour through that and i loved the comics as a kid so i'm crazy excited about this movie but i haven't seen it yet um this movie is you just look at the crew of this movie and you you have to go see it peter jackson produced it and he was the second unit director on uh on it steven spielberg directed it uh steven moffat wrote it along with uh joe cornish and edgar wright so um, immediately, these, this, those are five names I will follow basically anywhere. Um, and so knowing they've all come together to make this movie, I'm on board. Um, this movie is, if you like Indiana Jones, to me this felt like a lost chapter in, an Indiana, in the Indiana Jones story. You could have basically made this as the young Indiana Jones adventures and said, oh yeah, this took place before he got involved with the Nazis, and it would fit. It is If you like the Indiana Jones movies, this is right. I mean, there there are sequences in this that feel so similar, and probably because it's Spielberg and John Williams also involved. It the music and the tone of it has that kind of a feel. Um, but basically, and I didn't know a lot about Tintin honestly going into it. I was aware of the character. I've never read any of his stories really, and so going in, I wasn't real sure what we would be getting into. Tintin is basically a young. Um, British detective, or is he a detective, or is he a like a reporter? I'm trying to remember now. Um, Basically, he, he gets in adventures yeah. due to like some of his investigations, and that's really the starting point. He uh, stumbles onto a mystery involving a ship in a bottle, and it goes from there. And he ends up kind of trying to figure out why is everybody fighting over this ship, this model ship, and it takes it from England. Uh, to uh, out to sea, and he ends up in Morocco, maybe somewhere in there, northern Africa. Um, fantastic, fantastic movie. It's like it's, and it's a great movie. I think like every eight year old boy would love this movie. It is. It's just. It is a good family adventure film. There's, you know, there is some shooting. There is a little bit of blood in the movie. It, so it does have some serious. It's not just completely, you know, yay kid friendly. That being said, it's also very slapsticky. It's very. Um, there's a lot in this to appeal to young boys, um, and there's very there's like no women in this movie. Like I noticed halfway through, but there hasn't been a single female character in this movie, um, which is just it's not really anything for or against the movie it just it was kind of odd to kind of notice that there is this great amazing uh pirate ship sequence in the middle of the movie it's a flashback um explaining the story of the ship they're looking for and it's like it is a pirate battle i have never seen before and it is great and it's a little implausible and but yet it's like it's the kind of implausibility that would take place at the climax of a pirates of the caribbean film like it would be completely at home there and you'd 
you would be on board with it and love it, and it's pretty great. The only thing I had against the movie was, um, and the only reason I held, I was expecting this again was because it's a Spielberg movie and it felt so much like Indiana Jones, is that the stakes are actually very very low. Um, it's like it's this uh, adventure to find this gold or to find this treasure of this pirate, um, which is cool and it's exciting. But the way you know the way it feels going into it and how big the movie feels sometimes you for it wasn't until like the last moments of the movie that i realized that if they never found this treasure it wouldn't matter it's not like indiana jones where it's like we need to find the ark of the covenant not just because it's a cool relic but also because the nazis will use it to take over the world right there's nothing like that in this movie when you get to the end and you find the gold it is resolved <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. oh right that is all we were looking for and now this guy can kind of rest and that's good but you know there isn't there aren't the stakes aren't super high it's just you you find out that it's like a family uh it's like a <sighs> the words are failing me two families fighting each other kind of a or, feud kind yeah, of yeah a feud thank you <laughs> a feud of you know trying to reclaim one family's honor that was besmirched by this other family and but that being said a lot of fun and there's this little dog and it's snowy that steals every scene he's in <laughs> and um the animation in this this is the first time that motion capture really hasn't bothered me at all um and i think they they we started watching the movie kelly and i were in the theater and it starts on this painter's tray and kelly's sitting next to me she goes oh wow and then it pulls out, and you see like the street, and she's like, "Oh wow!" And she pulls out, camera pulls out even further, and you see the the painter and the the subject. And she's like, "Oh wow! It's a gorgeous looking movie, and it is very very lifelike while still being very cartoony. Like the characters aren't pushed into that weird place that Anthony Hopkins was pushed into in Beowulf, where you're watching it and you're like, "That's clearly Anthony Hopkins. Why is it CG, Anthony Hopkins?" None of the characters in this movie look like the actors that are portraying them. They look like a somewhat photorealistic version of the way the original artist drew them. And so they almost look like caricatures. And so that, I think, allows them to be more lifelike in a way that, like, Polar Express doesn't. It's weird. Like, it, it, it almost feels like it shouldn't work. But when you're watching the movie, it like, you look at their eyes, and you can see what the characters are thinking, and you can see them, and it feels very natural, like you would have filmed it the same way. Um, I can't recommend it enough. I think more people should go see it. I don't think enough people are, because they don't know what a Tintin is. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree. So, anyway, that wraps up this portion of um, yeah the podcast, and we're going to move into now uh, Swing Time. Um, right, at night... A 1936 Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers uh, dance flick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically. Was, uh, I read that this was the sixth time Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers worked together. Six out of, they ended up doing ten movies together. And Kelly, who had read the Lucille Ball autobiography, mm-hmm. uh, Lucille Ball was uh, friends with Ginger Rogers, and apparently Ginger and Fred hated each other. Like Fred was always telling her how to dance and showing her like what she was doing wrong, and they did not get along. They, however, had great on-screen chemistry. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's there's a fine line between that 
fighting and loving kind of thing and i think when yeah. you get that chemistry on screen you know yeah and it was it was ha- I, hatred can sometimes come across as love yeah. i think well that, that's what that's what that's one thing i appreciated was knowing that backstory because mm-hmm. in the movie that the roles are flipped ginger rogers is teaching fred how to dance mm-hmm. in several scenes and so that was kind of fun knowing that in real life fred was telling her what to do <laughs> yeah um yeah it's it, this is a fun little movie i mean it's um you know, it's a it's a nineteen thirty six film, so um, some of the production value is is maybe not as high as we would expect today or whatever. Uh, it was really interesting though to watch this in comparison to something like Yankee Doodle Dandy, which we watched mm-hmm. a few movies ago, um, and how uh, you know this movie was several years earlier than Yankee Doodle Dandy, mm-hmm. um, and yet I liked this one better. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this one was much more enjoyable. Um, that being said, I also feel like it suffered some of the same problems. Yeah, you know, like could you summarize the story in a cohesive way in a sentence? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a little bizarre. Yeah, uh, and meandering. Yeah, it's 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 less of a story than it is kind of a whole set of vignettes, which I think is maybe kind of something we said about Yankee Doodle Dandy. Exactly. Um, Yankee Doodle Dandy had this thing where they were actually semi-real vignettes, like it was almost right. stuff that actually happened, oh, right. or at least kind of what people wanted to have have have, have had happen with Cohen. Yeah. Uh, this movie is really all about setting up the next dance number. Uh, I yes. mean, that's pretty much. That's exactly all what, that this story does. Yeah, that's exactly what um, it feels like. It feels like somebody came along and said, "I have these four dance sequences that I've come up with, and these three great songs. Um, how can we figure out a way to combine them into a movie?" Because mm-hmm. it begins with this entertainer who's come through. He's coming through town with his traveling singing act, and um, he's got to finish the show and get to his wedding. But he has the worst friends in the world. Oh my gosh. They are, the they are truly the worst the friends in the world. Who make him late for his wedding by like delaying him by going, oh no, you can't dress- wear that. And oh no, oh hey, the, the, the priest just called. You're fine. He says no one's there yet. Like and it's hours. exactly opposite. He is hours late. He is out- by the time he gets to the church, no one is there. Yeah. And so then he makes a deal with the bride's father when he goes to the bride's house to raise... Ten thousand dollars. I think it was like twenty five thousand dollars. Twenty five. Like, like if he can raise twenty five thousand dollars, then he could marry, you know, his daughter. And the daughter was like, "Oh, good. We can still get married. You just have to make twenty five thousand dollars." Which you know, and in, in I'm sure the terms of the time is like you know a million dollars today or something right. like that. You know, it's still it's still is a very strange scene, and it makes yes. you laugh a couple times because they do a couple little gags in that scene where like when he first shows up, like the cat hates him and the dog barks at him. There's and a the, painting on the, the wall of the grandfather. He's scowling at him, and then they resolve it, and then the cat loves him, and the painting even's like smiling at him from the wall, and you're like, this is strange. But even like just the way it goes down, it's like. The bride isn't really that upset. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, why don't you guys just go elope? Why are you waiting for the, this strange bet to take place to get married? Oh, whatever. <laughs> and then he goes to, I guess, New York, I think it was New York, to uh, make the money gambling. Yeah. And that's- because he feels like he made a because he because he feels like he made a lot of money gambling. Well, he's lucky. He's a, he's a lucky. He's lucky. Yeah. And, and uh, he gets to New York and he 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 quite literally runs into uh uh ginger rogers mm-hmm. um for their meet cute and uh yes. and 
and, and that, I guess maybe that's the thing to touch on. Like, everything in this movie really is kind of cute and fun and has yeah. kind of this jaunty edge to it, which I really like about the film. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't hang together well. Right. Um, but he meets her in kind of this way and like ends up following her he's penniless and is trying to figure out how to make money and he ends up following her she happens to be a dance instructor at this dance studio and and the first lesson is free so what do you know he goes in and he takes his first lesson and uh he ends up saving her job because because he's actually a good dancer he's just pretending pretending not to be so that he can kind of get to know her and then what's like i don't understand his motivation (laughs) Because you go, wait a minute, you're here to make money to get married. Why are you really, why are you trying to worm your way into a relationship with this girl? Exactly. (laughs) I don't understand, wait, what? Yeah, so, so, I mean, it just, it, the whole movie kind of goes like this. I mean, because he actually turns out to be a good dancer and they dance so beautifully together, the owner of the dance studio sets him up with this other gig to go dance at this club, but then that falls through. And that club is very Ricky and Lucy. It feels very, like when you see it, it looks like the same club that uh, Ricky's always going to go work at, and I love Lucy, Mm -hmm. Um, which is wonderful. It's just... And, uh, you know, and uh, he ends up, making money gambling and they end up dancing he ends up owning some guy's contract so that they can dance and, right and, and i mean there's, there's a whole slew of things that happen a lot of little things that that happen in the movie and like you said the scenes are all a lot of them are really wonderful the way they kind of play out uh, my, my favorite people. go ahead yeah i was gonna say my favorite scene is the um the sequence where they're picketing outside of yeah, that's exactly what i was about to mention yeah. <laughs> they um he and his best friend end up picketing. Uh, they have signs that say that they're being treated unfairly and like they're just marching outside of Ginger Rogers' uh, hotel room because she's mad at them and won't talk to them. Right. And so they're they're picketing her yeah. and putting on a protest. And I, I thought that was a fantastic sequence. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and and there's there's moments like that throughout the whole movie where you're just like, that's a wonderful idea. Yeah, it just. It's just every idea doesn't match to the next idea yeah. because it's it's there to set up the next song. Right. It's like it's like you are not going to get to the wedding at this point because you have to have a song about this thing or well, you have to yeah. you know have a it's song about your life over here now and now you have to yeah. Yeah. You are going to pretend not to be able to dance because we have this great song about someone teaching someone how to dance. Right. You know? And it is. It's a great song. Like, when you when you yeah. get into it, you're like, oh, I know this song. I've heard this song before. This is a classic song. Just like the, there's a song in this movie that I think everybody knows and loves in various degrees, The Way You Look Tonight. Mm-hmm. Did not realize it was from this movie. I just knew it as this old, great song. And all of a sudden, he starts singing, you know, the way you look tonight. Oh, that's it. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. I did not know that that was in this movie. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So it, it's uh, that's kind of how this whole movie goes. And to me, the big thing that kind of frustrated me with the movie is I thought all of the really, really interesting story elements, the parts where he makes like tons and tons of money gambling and where they like rise through status and and have like their big dance showdowns and everything that sets up all of the really interesting stuff happens in between the scenes that we actually see that was kind of 
that was kind of the part that frustrated me. I, I wanted to see them score big. I wanted to see how like they went from being penniless to being, you know, co-owners of a nightclub, mm-hmm. and uh, and we just don't. We kind of miss all yeah. of that. Yeah, we just kind of get a, and now they have money, and now they co-own a nightclub, and yeah. now, and so uh, I don't know. That was kind of my biggest frustration with the movie. Yeah, um, and then there's weird sequences in it. Also, I mean, as much as fun as the music is, and as great as the dancing is, there is a sequence where all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere and for no reason, it feels uh, Fred Astaire's in blackface doing the Bojangles song. Mm-hmm. And it's, you're just kind of going, wait, what's, why? What's going on? And like, it's strange because like the blackface image is so, um, at this point, so offensive and repugnant that even I'm looking at it going, oh, why would you do that? That is not, why? But yet as that whole sequence goes on, he doesn't do anything that is offensive beyond painting his face black. He doesn't, you know, go like, look, this is what the typical black man does. You know, he doesn't do anything that is like, I'm going to, I'm poking fun of a race here. Like that doesn't seem to be the, the context of what he's doing. Yeah. Yet it's there for five minutes. Yeah. And I mean, in fact, this whole sequence is, I mean, entirely an homage to Bill Bojangles Robinson, who was one of the first black stars of cinema. I mean, he, he, you know, was a dancer who influenced, I mean, I know had to have influenced Fred Astaire, who was probably a huge, you know, um, impact on Fred Astaire learning how to dance and doing all of his stuff. And I mean, the style of the dance is very much in the style of, of him. And, um, you know, the song is kind of about him mm-hmm. and the, um, you know, it's it is. It's it's almost like he's trying to do a nice thing, yeah. And yet, it's through what we now today kind of consider an offensive thing, yeah. And, it, and so it's it's the it's the weirdest moment in a movie that, that I've seen in a while. It's not discussed in the movie even. Mm-hmm. It just cuts to a new dance number, like oh, I gotta go do my dance number now, and it's boom, here it is in blackface, and then it ends, mm-hmm. and the movie goes on, and so you're like. Why mm-hmm. did that just happen? Yeah, and and what's even weird about it is it is if you just take it at the face value of the dance number, it's actually one of the more enjoyable dance numbers yeah. in the whole movie. There's yeah. some really cool visual effects that they do in it that yeah, are I'm still really not sure how they did. Yeah, it's uh, he ends up dancing with his own shadow basically. Yeah, like or, it, it or starts, like three of his own shadows, right. and it starts off in a way that you go, "Oh, it's just his shadow." They've lit him from three different angles, and mm-hmm. you can see his shadow on the walls. But then you realize as it goes on that he's not dancing with his shadows because the shadows are doing different moves than he's doing. So I'm still a little curious. Like it, it's not on the DVD anywhere. They don't explain how they pulled that sequence off. Um, I'm assuming it's probably something very low tech, but it's still a very impressive sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm not, I'm not ready to make a call on this one yet. I'm, That's I'm, how I feel about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, you know, uh, in general, I, I would never encourage anyone to do blackface, and, and I, I still wouldn't after this, and, and I think it was probably a misstep in general, but at the same time, I can't get too frustrated or upset with it for this particular movie. For so the listener I, at home, I'm shaking my head emphatically in agreement. 
<laughs> so uh, this is definitely one of those cases where uh, maybe you need to decide for yourself on how you feel about it. Um, but it's definitely an interesting aspect of this movie. I do think, yeah, I feel like th- this sequence at least belongs to a bigger conversation that I am not currently prepared to have. Yeah. You know, it's like, I feel like there, at, at some point, maybe we should even do it here on the podcast, kind of explore um, some of the racial themes and, you know, race relations in movies throughout the years and how different races um, have been portrayed and how different things at one time seemed okay and other, and now we've moved beyond that where it's, it's not at all okay. Yeah, um, I mean, I was just watching uh, The Daily Show um, mm-hmm. last night, I guess, actually, and George Lucas was on. Yeah, um, I saw and that. He, and about he, Red Tails. He was talking about Red Tails, and his big... Uh, the, the big thing he was talking about with it was how none of the studios wanted to release it. It's part of the reason it's taken him 20-some years to make this. Yeah. Is that um, nobody knows how to market it because it is, in his mind, at least in George Lucas's mind, it is the first all-black action movie. and Which seems crazy to hear because you immediately start thinking of movies like Bad Boys mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, but and I, I'm not sure how much of that is just his own hyperbole. Yeah, but at the, but same, at time, the same time, when I think back to some of the big movies uh, uh, that start in an all-black cast, there are very prominent uh, white heroes as well. Even mm-hmm. like one of my favorites that I would go to as a great movie is Glory, but mm-hmm. it's definitely told through Matthew Broderick's perspective. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it's, he's kind of the the hero of the movie, even though it's really about you know the black soldiers of the Civil War. Um, so it, 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 that yeah. that interview sh- just kind of stunned me because yeah. I'm like George Lucas is I mean it's George Lucas's movie I mean it, he technically didn't write or direct it but this is his movie how does he not have the power just to go hi I'm George Lucas I've made billions of dollars with all of my movies would you like to make would you like to make some money with me <laughs> like yeah. how 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 does a studio back down from a movie that has his name attached to it at this point mm-hmm. I do not understand that yeah. So, uh, anyhow, uh, all of that to say, I, I do think there's a larger issue here, and, and I don't think this particular episode of this podcast no. is where we're really going to get into it. But, um, I mean, as as recently as last night, this is still an issue, though, is, yeah. is my point. And um, so I think I think this is something that we may need to uh, readdress here at some point. Um, yeah, in I mean, this in this podcast, yeah, yeah, because I mean, taking George Lucas out of that equation, that's a disturbing idea. You know, if if it was a because he mentions Tyler Perry in the interview, kind of saying, you know, this movie cost as much as most Tyler Perry movies make. Mm-hmm. Um, if this was even a Tyler Perry movie, if Tyler Perry said, "I'm going to make this movie," it's like, how have we not figured out that these are still good movies? How have we not figured out how to market that? If that's really the case, are we really? that backwards and that race dominant in this situation that is terrifying mm-hmm. yeah so um anyway uh, yeah so swing time <laughs> <laughs> no uh so let, let's let's jump to something here with swing time scott um this is number 90 on afi's top 100 list what do you think about that it's a little befuddling i'll be honest um just because it's an enjoyable movie. Mm-hmm. There's nothing I can think of that's technically wrong with the movie. Um, and so it's like, it's not like I'm going to bash it for anything. But when I look at the movies that it's sandwiched in between, it seems weird. Like, this is above Sophie's Choice. 
I don't know why. I don't know why this is quote unquote better than Pulp Fiction. Um, and the next movie we're going to talk about is The Sixth Sense. I don't, you know, it's like where does this this uh, maybe I should have done a little bit more research before sitting down to do this podcast because I, I I guess the only thing I am left to wonder about this movie is does it play some part in American history that I am completely unfamiliar with because as it stands I don't I wouldn't put this on the list I could understand an, a good argument for Yankee Doodle Dandy because of its historical significance but this doesn't seem this seems like you could have picked any one of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies and it's been like that one mm-hmm. <laughs> um, my enjoyment of the movie actually was greatly um, influenced by my knowledge of the technical aspects of the movie for example Fred Astaire always insisted in doing all of his dance routines in single camera shots that would show the entire body there's times where the camera moves closer where you're seeing a kind of a quote-unquote close-up, mm-hmm. but it's always in a single camera move. He wanted the audience to know that he was the one that was doing it. He, you know, there, there were no stunt doubles. There was nobody doing the feet motions while he was doing the happy face. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not going on. He wanted people to know that. So going into the movie, knowing that, the dance sequences are even more impressive. Um, knowing yeah. the backstory with Fred and Ginger made me enjoy their back and forth even more. Yeah, it's you know it's definitely one of those movies that it has all of the elements of a good you know it, it, of a good Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I mean, I don't know if it's on there because everyone just goes there needs to be a Fred and Ginger movie on here. Yeah, and maybe this is technically the best of the ten that they did together. But you know, I will say, outside of this movie, there are other Fred Astaire movies that have him dancing probably better routines right um there are i I don't know this there may be better movies with ginger rogers where she dances better routines i i can't say that unequivocally yeah i don't know enough about both of them Mm -hmm. but there are (laughs) there are definitely movies uh with at least fred astaire that have way better plot lines yes um you know, I just, it's its an interesting, I mean, it's possible that this is just like the confluence of like their particular um, pairing. Mm-hmm. But that said, I'm i am trying to think there's a, uh, there's another one where, uh, where they go to Rio de Janeiro um, that uh, I'm trying to remember what the name of it is, but it, it, that was always my favorite mm-hmm. um, of the, uh, of the Fred and Ginger movies. But, um, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting movie to have on this list to me. I concur. Um, and I think we can kind of almost close on that. I think we've kind of basically given our verdict or our review. Um, but to summarize, I would say, um, it's a fun movie. I think Fred Astaire is a great leading actor. He's got mm-hmm. good comic timing. He's got you know a good presence. He's very talented singing and dancing. Um, Ginger uh, Rogers is fantastic as well. Um, really love her. She's kind of has that 1930s uh, leading actress moxie that mm-hmm. I you know that I love. Um, it's it's a fun movie. It's you know honestly again there's a lot worse ways to spend uh, 90 minutes of your life if you want to watch a, a fun movie. Um, that being said, you're also not missing a whole heck of a lot. Yeah. It's not a, put this on your Netflix queue, put it number one, thank me to later, you know? Yeah. 
uh, Top Hat is, I'm sorry, Top Hat is okay. the movie I'm thinking of. And it's not Rio, it's London. There's okay. another one where they're in Rio. I'm getting my plot. But Top Hat is is okay. probably my favorite of the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies. I haven't seen that one. But, yeah, it's, it, I, I'll agree with Scott on this, though. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a good little movie. It's, you know, it's worth your time. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and yeah, Ginger Rogers is fantastic in it. You know, she definitely does have that moxie, as you said. She's, mm-hmm. you know definitely a product of her era and mm-hmm. and probably helped define some of the era as well and uh i mean fred astaire has been and always will be you know one of the great dancers um and and you know it's never it's never a bad thing to see him in a performance exactly and you know looking at the history of this just kind of recognizing mm-hmm. that it came out in 1936 mm-hmm. this might be a movie that really did help the nation yeah, it was definitely, I think, a, a product of its time. Um, and, you know, and I can definitely see, um, you know, wanting to preserve some of the legacy of, of these particular actors of, of, you know, that particular time. Um, you know, it's it's important to have that kind of archival um, information. And, and, you know, maybe putting stuff like this on the list, um, whether or not we think the movie really merits it or not, it at least pulls it in and people are actually going to watch this again because of a list like this or, or something like that. And, um, you know, I can see some validity to that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that said, I don't know that it would ever make my top 100 list. So that's that's kind of where I'm at on the movie. I think that's a... Yeah, I concur. I think it's a good time. <laughs> Let's put a little bow on that and uh, well, uh, encourage everybody to come on back. Uh, or, before you come back, if you have anything you'd like to comment on, anything that we talked about, whether it's Red Tails or Blackface in general, the history of that, or uh, you have opinions on this particular movie, um, find us at uh, moviesyoushouldlove.com. Uh, weigh in. We'll have a page up where you can uh, comment on this. Um, and then come back next week where we d- will discuss number 89 on AFI's Top 100 Films, The Sixth Sense. Indeed, yeah. So, uh, moviesyoushouldlove.com and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Movies You Should Love podcast. Join in the conversation at moviesyoushouldlove.com. 